WNYC Studios. Um, well, I think we should start the story on June 25th, 1969. Well, first you should say who you are. I'm Susie Lechtenberg. And I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect, a show about the Supreme Court from Radiolab. Okay, so why June, tw- tw- when was it? June 25th, 1969. Why then? Uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren is retiring. Earl Warren of the Warren Court. Is that, um, a, is that a big court? Yeah, that's really big. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, come on, humor me. I think if you think of legendary Supreme Court justices, he's probably in, I don't know, the top five. So he was one of the Mount Olympians. He's a, he's a big deal. Constitutional rights. All right, so um, he's retiring. So he's retiring. He's been on the court for 16 years, and he's in an interview, and he's asked. How would you list, Mr. Chief Justice, as the Supreme Court's most important decision in your 16 years here? And he says something that is kind of astounding. I think the uh, <coughs> reapportionment, not only of state legislatures, but... Wait, portion- before you hear the answer, yeah. I think that you need to know that um, he could have said all kinds of cases. He was the chief justice during, during the I don't know, Miranda? He advised either of his rights to remain silent. That's you have the right to remain silent. Oh. Clarence Earl Gideon petitioner. Or Gideon versus Wainwright. It is the duty... Of the state. Which is you have the right to an attorney. To appoint counsel. Uh, that seems big. Or segregation has no place in our democracy. Brown versus Board of Education. Okay. That there is no better place to That one I know. That one I know. Desegregating the schools. That's big. Yeah, what could be bigger than that? He doesn't say any of those. What does he say? He says this little case called The Baker versus Carr case. Baker versus Carr. Huh. I, I think that uh, that, that case is perhaps the most important case that we've had since I've been on the court. He thought that case, whatever it is, is more important than the case that desegregated the schools. He did. Wow. So what the hell is it? Exactly. No, really, what is it? It's this case that was so dramatic and so traumatic that it apparently broke two justices. There was an instance in which my uh, brother found my father going upstairs to get a shotgun. Wow. More the Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Oh, yay, oh, yay. For the Court is now sitting. Oh, yay. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Okay, so this is More Perfect, Radiolab's first ever spin-off show. It's about the Supreme Court and the decisions that happen there and how those decisions shape our lives. And just to frame the story that you're about to hear, uh, as we were putting this show together, we hosted a panel discussion, and a couple of us were on stage, and a woman in the audience asked the following question. Uh, yes, could you um, address what I see as the uh, increasing politicization of the court, the apotheosis of which I guess was, uh, you know, voting or electing Bush to be our president. Has the court always been this way? Is this just my perception that it's becoming more politicized? So this turns out to be a really interesting question. Uh, It turns out, I didn't know this until Susie started looking into it, that there was a moment when the Pandora's box just got ripped open. 
So I think to understand that moment and this story, you have to get to know three characters. Okay. And these aren't necessarily the three most important justices of all time. Okay. Because at that time you had Chief Justice Earl Warren mm-hmm. and William Brennan on the court. And these are kind of giants of the Supreme Court. Gotcha. But for this story, these three guys are key. One of them is on the right. One of them is on the left. And one of them is just stuck right in the middle. Tragically in the middle. Ooh. So on the conservative side... Ryan, what difference does it make whether it's in the Constitution or in any other expression or action by the state? You had a guy named Felix Frankfurter. So Justice Frankfurter was one of the most... Wait, his, really, his name was really Frankfurter? Yes. One oh. of the most influential justices of all time. I've... That's Tara Grove. She teaches constitutional law at William & Mary Law School. Um, he was a very influential scholar at Harvard Law School before he became a justice, was a close advisor to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, he was extremely smart. A towering figure. But as a person, Justice, Fra- <laughs> Justice Frankfurter... He wasn't necessarily the nicest person. I heard that from everyone I talked to. I always call him a bantam rooster. Uh, He was a difficult, crusty figure. He was short. He had a little bit of a pouch on him. He was one of the most condescending, egotistical of justices. He was a tough customer. When When a clerk would come to the U.S. Supreme Court chambers to deliver a message, when the person at the door tried to hand Justice Frankfurter the paper, Frankfurter would inevitably let it drop to the ground. So the person had to bend down and pick it up to hand it to him again. Dude, that's a wiener move. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, the voices you heard besides Tara Grove were professors Mike Seidman. Georgetown University Law Center. Sam Zakharoff. NYU Law School. Craig Smith. California University of Pennsylvania. And ex-Supreme Court clerk Alan Cohn. Cohn, K-O-H-N. Okay, so Frankfurter is on one side of the aisle, and his nemesis is a gentleman on the other side of the aisle, a liberal named William O. Douglas. Here is Justice Douglas now in the Supreme Court chambers. This is a recording from a 1957 interview with Justice Douglas. He looks very well. His face is tan, rugged. His eyes sparkle. Douglas was this mountain-climbing environmentalist big on civil liberties. I think that uh, this oncoming generation is more aware of the importance of civil liberties than perhaps my generation was. And like Justice Frankfurter, Douglas was a prick to everybody around him. Everybody hated him. All those same adjectives. Condescending. Egotistical. Abrasive. Applied. Here's how the New York Times described him. A habitual womanizer, heavy drinker, and uncaring parent, Douglas was married four times, cheating on each of his first three wives with her eventual successor. (laughs) Do do, do you believe in kissing your bride, sir? Oh, sure. This is footage from his last marriage to his wife, Kathleen. He was 67, she was 23. Oh, yes. So, yes, yes, that that is William Douglas. So you have these two guys, Frankfurter the Bantam Rooster, Douglas the Prick. And as you can imagine, they hated each other. They just despised each other. So Frankfurter had this habit of monologuing, and while he would go on and on, Douglas would just pull out a book right in front of him and just start reading. You know, he was just open in his disdain for Frankfurter. I actually found a series of interviews that were done with Douglas in the early 60s where he basically calls Frankfurter names. Just the uh, evil... Uh, Utterly uh, dishonest intellectually. He was very, very devious. He spent his time uh, going up and down the halls, putting uh, poison in everybody's spring. Wow. 
why they hate each other so much. Well, according to Mike Seidman... Some of that comes from maybe their difference in background. Frankfurter was a Jewish immigrant from Austria. Uh, Douglas was a Westerner. But according to him, the core of their hatred actually was ideological. It reflected um, a really important split. Over how powerful the court should be. So for Frankfurter, courts just ought not to intervene. He believed that many matters should be left up to the political process and that courts should stay out of those issues. Douglas, um, he thought just the opposite. He thought that courts ought to intervene to protect, for example, minority groups, free speech rights, things of that sort. So you had this personal feud going, you had this ideological war that was brewing in the court, and into the middle of all this... walks Charles Whitaker. You might call him the swing vote. Okay. Uh, this is Alan Cohn. I was a Supreme Court clerk for Justice Whitaker from 1957 to 1958. Whitaker grew up in a small town in Kansas called Troy. The antithesis of flashy. This is his granddaughter, Kate. He attended kind of a one-room schoolhouse. Proverbial little red schoolhouse. Worked on the farm. But he, he, he determined that was not the life for him. Kate says when he was around 16, he became obsessed with the idea of becoming a lawyer. And she says he would actually practice law to the animals. Can you imagine, you know, pushing the plow along in the fields and then lecturing and arguing cases to the cows or to the horses or whatever? Um, did you really hear that he was lecturing? Doing, giving yes. Oh, and on the side, he was he would hunt. He would hunt uh, squirrels. Possum. Raccoons. Skunks. And he'd sell the pelts for a few dollars. And he amassed, I think, $700. With that money, he put himself through law school. My understanding is that he simultaneously went to law school and high school. What? Which is just mind-boggling. But Yeah, apparently he went to the head of the law school in Kansas City, and he's like, I don't have a high school diploma, but you need to let me in. The dean just saw how ambitious he was, and he was impressed. And he's like, all right, you're in. I love this guy. He's like Mr. Bootstraps. Totally. Anyhow, to make a long story short... Soon he became a top lawyer. And Alan Cohn says that's because he would do better than all of his opponents. He would outwork them, outprepare them. Great attention to detail. Great presence before a jury. And then he becomes a judge. First a federal district judge and then an appeals court judge. Then in February of 1957... He gets the call. As I recall, it was in the evening, and they asked if he could be in Washington in the next morning. And This is Kent Whitaker, Charles Whitaker's son. He said, certainly, but my best blue suit is at the cleaners tonight. What did he wear? <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, my mother or someone else got the cleaners to open up at night. In the first instance, there must be allegations tending to show that the corporation's right of exercise of free will have been destroyed. This is one of the first times that Whitaker spoke on the bench, and he interjects with a question for the attorney, and he is Midwestern polite. I, I hesitate. You've had so many interruptions. But I have a question or two. I wonder if I might have the privilege of asking you. I think it may the thing that's crazy to me is that he walked into the highest court in the land and he didn't even go to college. I think it's important to understand that he had no formal education, really. In other words, he never took history or political science or social science. But he loved the law. My father was not an ideologue. 
He expected the court to be an arena in which there were lively arguments on legal issues. And that's what he enjoyed, what he was really good at, what, 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 he, what he loved. As Kent Whitaker puts it, his dad was kind of the walking embodiment of that thing that Chief Justice John Roberts said back in 2005 during his confirmation hearing. Mr. Chairman, I come before the committee with no agenda. He was sort of a blank slate. It's my job to call balls and strikes and not to pitch or bat. My father was not interested in advancing a cause or a theory, but... Frankly, that seems how a justice should be, that you are approaching it without a political agenda and that you're deciding it. I think in theory that's exactly right. But in practice, so many of their cases, there, there is no law to turn to to decide those cases. Kent says that his dad quickly discovered that law at the Supreme Court is never clean-cut. Cases make it there precisely because the law isn't clear. Many of their cases are just without precedent. And it's in those cases. At least you have must have your ideology as a, as a starting point. And the fact that he didn't have an ideology, that left him vulnerable. He was definitely getting lobbied from both sides. Frankfurter on one side, Douglas on the other. He was the new kid on the block and was being pulled by each one. He didn't like the way the judges bullied for votes. Within his first three months, he found himself in the middle of a death penalty case. She was found in her bedroom by a fireman, taken outside, and soon thereafter pronounced dead. A guy had been tried for arson and murder, and Douglas and the liberals wanted to intervene to help him. They felt like he'd been treated unfairly by the lower courts. But Frankfurter and the conservatives thought that the Supreme Court should be cautious. They should honor precedent. Now, according to Justice Douglas, Justice Whitaker was undecided all the time. Um, Douglas would tell him one thing. say, oh, well, yeah, that seems right. And then Justice Frankfurter would say something else. And he'd say, oh, gosh, that sounds right. I think there was some thought that uh, he might side with the guy who talked with him last, you know? He ends up being so undecided on this death penalty case that he forces the court to delay the vote until the next term. And there were a series of cases like this Albert L. Trope. where the law would be fuzzy, ideologies would harden, and Whitaker, he would be right in the middle. The physical depictions of him in that first year from people who saw him um, describe somebody who was restless, terribly unhappy, had lost a lot of weight, nervous, was agitated most of the time. It was a lot of stress on him. Now, may I say this, Mr. Justice Whitaker, that in normal course under California procedure, the men of probation... But over the next few years, he bounces back. He finds his feet. You say that the judgment of probation... His production increased substantially. In his third year, his fourth year, and part of his fifth year, he wrote as many opinions as any other judge. He wrote as many dissenting opinions as any other judge. He was one of the nine. He was fully employed. And he wrote some very important opinions during that period of time. And along came Baker versus Carr. And it broke him. That's coming up. And for more stories about the Supreme Court, you can find More Perfect on Apple Podcasts, Google Music Play, or at moreperfectpodcast.org. I'm Jad Abumrad, back in a moment.
I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect, a spinoff show from Radiolab. Let's get back to our story now from Susie Lechtenberg. It's a story about a Supreme Court case that was so fraught that it broke two justices. Number 103, Charles W. Baker et al. Appellants versus Joe C. Carr et al. Okay, so it's April 19th, 1961. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The Supreme Court is hearing Baker versus Carr. This is an individual voting rights case brought by 11 qualified voters in the state of Tennessee. Now, on the surface, Baker versus Carr was about districts and how people are counted in this country. Hmm. And this is one of the most basic ways that political power gets assigned in America. Yeah, like, you know, as populations grow in size, that growth should be reflected in the number of Congress people that are representing them. But at that time in Tennessee... Tennessee hadn't changed its legislative districts. Its last reapportionment was in 1901. Since 1901. Which was... 60 years. 60 years earlier. Well, this created big problems for urban areas. Like Memphis, because in those 60 years, people had moved to the cities in droves. And rural areas were getting smaller. But the Tennessee state legislature had refused to update its count, and it was still giving more representation to those rural areas. In Tennessee... um, the figure was 23 to 1. NYU law professor Sam Izekaroff. Uh, for people that don't understand, how does it actually dilute your vote? Well, and this is very simple. You have one district that has uh, one person in it, and you have another district that has 23 people in it. The district that has one person gives all the power to that one person. The district that has 23 people uh, spreads it out over all 23. It, Wait, what? All right, think of it this way. At that time, a person in the city in Tennessee had one twenty-third as much of a voice in the legislature as a person living in the countryside. Oh. And here's sort of the insidious underbelly of that. It just so happened that the people living in the countryside were mostly white. And a large percentage of the people living in the city were black. Underlying all of the reapportionment litigation, at least in the South, was white supremacy. That's Doug Smith. Historian and the author of On Democracy's Doorstep. This was deeply tied to white supremacy and the maintenance of Jim Crow. It was a method of making sure that rural uh, white legislatures uh, continued to control the power structure. So you had this situation, he says, where a small minority was choking the majority. Choking the, the cities and the growing suburban areas from any, sort, any sorts of funds. The cities couldn't get the money they needed for roads, education, social services. So the question at the Supreme Court was, and they would actually tackle this in two separate hearings, what should they do about this? And here's where you get to the ideological smackdown. Liberals on the court, like Douglas basically agreed with the plaintiff when they argued. And I say there's nothing in the Constitution of the United States of America that ordains, and nothing in the Constitution of, the te- of Tennessee that ordains, uh, that state government is and must remain an agricultural commodity. And there's nothing in either one of those constitutions that said it takes 20 city residents to equal one farm. Liberals were like, yeah, this is clearly an injustice. People in the cities are getting screwed. Their voting rights have been diluted and debased to the point of nullification. But the conservatives are like, yes, people are getting hurt. But we're not going to do anything about it. We can't. 
Frankfurter. The mere fact that there's a, a rotten situation doesn't mean a court today. Most vociferously said we cannot get involved, that as bad as this is, that was not an issue that the court should get involved in. Why not? Well... I do have to think of the road that I'm going on, what kind of road you're inviting me. He was like, think of where this will lead. Considering the fact that this isn't a unique Tennessee situation. This isn't a unique Tennessee situation. If we end up doing this in Tennessee, pretty soon we'll be intervening in California. Maryland. South Carolina. Pretty soon we'll be rewriting the entire U.S. legislative map. I have to think of a lot of states and not say this is just Tennessee. For me, this is the United States, not Tennessee. Yeah, so basically he felt like this would force the courts to get involved in politics. And he really believed that the courts should never, ever get involved in politics. This is, a, this is an idea that goes way back to something called... The political question doctrine. Political question doctrine. The political question doctrine says no federal court can decide this issue at all. The courts simply had no business getting into what were considered to be fundamentally political questions and what could be more fundamentally political than the makeup of a legislature. It's a philosophy rooted in the notion that unelected lifetime judges should not be substituting their will for the will of the people's elected representatives. Frankfurter felt like even if you have a terrible political situation, if the justices stepped in and overruled the legislature, that would be worse than doing nothing at all because it would be fundamentally undemocratic. Um, he, viewed, he viewed the political question doctrine as a crucial limitation on the federal judicial power. And he wasn't alone. The courts had followed this guideline for about 150 years, and even with the current case in Tennessee. The federal court that first heard the case recognized the situation and actually referred to it as an evil. The evil is a serious one which should be corrected without further delay, end quote. But they said that this is a that this is a political question. Malapportionment is a political question, and only the political branches can handle this. Supreme Court, they have no power to do anything about protecting and enforcing the voting rights of these plaintiffs. So, when the lawyer for Tennessee got up there, I am not here defending the legislature. He didn't try to defend how Tennessee was counting or not counting its people. He basically said, "Yeah, what we're doing is bad, but it's nobody's job but ours to fix." Is it worse for the legislature of Tennessee not to reapportion, or is it worse? For the federal district courts to violate the age-old doctrine of separation of power. He basically said, if you step in, you're going to screw up the balance of power in America. The power in America comes from we the people, not the courts. So this matter should be left up to the people of Tennessee and their elected representatives. Wait a second. If the whole problem is that you don't have a voice in the legislature, then how can you suddenly just have a voice in the legislature? I mean, the only way to change it would be if the legislature itself were to give up power, and why would they do that? Because, of course, once elected officials are in power, they have a vested interest in keeping their districts exactly as they are because those were the districts that elected them. And fundamentally, electoral representatives knew that if they redrew the lines, that they would be um, voting themselves out of political power. That's Guy Charles, professor, Duke Law School. So they had an incentive not to do anything about this. 
So for the liberals on the court, they felt like this was a fundamental flaw in our democracy that needed to be fixed. And nobody was going to fix it if they didn't fix it. But for Frankfurter, he's like, if you fix this one, you're going to have to fix that one and that one and that one and that one. And where's it going to stop? If you do this, there is no way out. The court's going to get stuck in what he called... The political thicket. The political thicket. The court must not enter the political thicket. That sounds like Frankfurter. He must have written those words. And the imagery of the thicket is that, uh, you know, the deer very proudly with his new horns goes into the thicket, gets entangled, and can never get out. Frankfurter's claim was, once the courts are in, there will be nothing beyond it, and someday the courts will be uh, forced to declare winners and losers of very high-profile elections. Okay, so after the oral arguments are over in Baker versus Carr, the justices head into conference. That's a meeting with just the nine. And when they went into conference, uh, basically the court was divided. Right down the middle. And Charles Whitaker, he was a potential swing vote. Whitaker was deeply torn. He'd been leaning Frankfurter's way. But if there is a clear constitutional right that's being violated... During those, those first, that first argument, he asked a number of questions that suggested a great deal of sympathy with the plaintiffs. Then is there not both power and duty in the courts to enforce that constitutional right? There was a lot of thought that he might actually come down on the side of, of the plaintiffs in that case, and I think that's where Frankfurter really really began to, to rip into him. Justice Frankfurter, right after the first oral argument, during the conference, he gave a 90-minute speech. So he talked for 90-plus straight minutes, darting around the room, pulling books off the shelves. Pulling books off the shelf, reading from prior cases. Gesticulating wildly to make his point. And the whole time looking directly at Whitaker. There was one account that I heard where Frankfurter went on for four hours. For hours. Really lecturing Whitaker, really, really belittling him. Oh, this guy. Yes, it, it, was, it was horribly intimidating. At one point, one of the justices on the liberal side, Justice Hugo Black, he took Whitaker aside. Black was trying to make him feel better. And Black said to Charles Whitaker, just remember, we're all boys grown tall. We're not the gods who sit on high and dispense justice. But it's very difficult not to see yourself in that role. Particularly if your vote might be the vote that decides everything. This started to weigh heavily on Whitaker's mind. He was disturbed by, the, by having the weight of the Supreme Court on his shoulders. According to his family, Kate and Kent. My mother tells me that, you know, he at that time was under a lot of stress and spoke as though he were dictating, spoke his punctuation. Hello, Judith, comma, it's very nice to meet you. Clearly thinking about everything that he might say being recorded. I remember his stating that he felt like all the words that he uttered were being chiseled in stone as a result of which he said, you don't talk much. So after they heard the case the first time, Whitaker couldn't make up his mind. And actually, incidentally, there was another justice. Justice Stewart, 
who was the other swing vote in the case, who also couldn't make up his mind. The court decided to hear the case again in the fall, just because they needed more time. And over the summer... Interesting enough, Whitaker said he remained deeply divided, that he'd actually written memos on both sides of the issue. Doug Smith says Whitaker wrote both an opinion for intervening in Baker versus Carr and a dissent against intervening in Baker versus Carr at the same time. Meanwhile, as he's doing this, Justice Frankfurter circulates a 60-page memo explaining how this was a political question that should not be decided by the courts. When he's got, you know, a fire in his belly. He's not going to let this one go. Number six, Charles W. Baker at Al Appellants. Monday, October 9th, 1961. It's 10 a.m. and the court is back in session. The lawyer arguing the case against the Tennessee legislature begins to talk. Tennessee voters seek federal court protection. Frankfurter sits quietly for about five minutes listening. Without delay. And then... You don't mean to imply because it's referred to wrong... He starts in. Under the state constitution, it had no rights under the state constitution. I certainly do not, Mr. Justice. The ratio you gave a minute ago has again determination of the state court. I wasn't trying to deal with that problem. I wanted to know, and the totality doesn't include, is there any state in the U.S. makes me different for you in this world? Well, it's passed on it by denying a right under it. If that isn't passing on it, I don't know what is passing on it. Of course not, Mr. Justice Frankfurter. Frankfurter hammers the attorneys with questions. During the course of oral arguments... He speaks approximately 170 times. 170? 170. <laughs> Damn. Charles Whitaker. ...have some system for the allocation of its legislators to districts account. 17 times. Well, uh, since they have... After nearly four hours of oral arguments... Recess now. The justices recess and go into conference. Frankfurter needed desperately. He had to get Whitaker. And he kept after him like a dog after a bone, trying to persuade him. And that harassing he got, I have to make a point here. It was a nightmare. And I saw the nightmare. How so? Describe it to me. Well, he was Uh, a nervous wreck and like a cat on a hot tin roof. I found out, I don't know if he told me or his wife told me, he was on tranquilizers. To try to overcome what he thought was just work-related stress, well, clearly something was taking hold of him. He had trouble concentrating. Highly fraught. I would characterize his eventual breakdown as something of a slow descent. By the early spring, after the court had returned from its winter recess, uh, Whitaker was absent from the court. You mean like he just didn't, he like he didn't show up for work one day? Apparently so. His clerks didn't know where he was. Um, the other justices didn't know his whereabouts. He just disappeared, really in the middle of what's going to become one of the you know, monumental decisions of the 20th century, he disappears. He had to escape. Where did he go? Well, he went to uh, really what would be a cabin in the woods in the middle of Wisconsin. And he, he called up one of his former law associates in Kansas City to come up and join him. 
And according to Craig Smith, he and this guy, whose name was Sam Mulby, they would just sit there on the bank of the lake in silence. They would sit for hours on end, not talking to each other. Just waiting for the justice to speak. You know, we have no way of knowing what he was thinking at that moment, but... I imagine he was just sitting there and he was thinking about these two realities that could unfold. Like, on the one hand, if the court stepped into politics, they could protect people. Yes, Selma, Alabama became a shining moment. You are to disperse. You are ordered to disperse. But on the other hand, what kind of precedent would this set? It's a sad day in America, Mr. President, where we can't... Would it make the court too powerful? In which case, who would protect the people from the court? I imagine his mind went back and forth and back and forth. And when Whitaker decided he really had to get back to work, then this protege would say to him, No, just relax. Just take it easy and um, get yourself together before you decide to go back. After three weeks, Justice Whitaker returns to D.C. Back to Washington uh, for a few days. That's Kentigan, his son. We found my father to be really in extremis uh, and and I think uh, borderline suicidal. When you said he was suicidal, what do you mean? There, there was a, an instance in which my uh, brother found my father going upstairs to get a shotgun. Oh. Yeah. A few days later, Charles Whitaker checks himself into a hospital. There is some evidence that it was really Justice Douglas who convinced Whitaker to go to the hospital. I do recall that Whitaker had had a nervous breakdown. That's Justice William Douglas again. And he was at Walter Reed Hospital. And I've been up to see him. The chief had been up to see him. And uh, he was in very poor physical condition. Very worried and very... uh, he asked me what I thought he should do. I told him I didn't think that he was, would be in a position to decide what he should do until he get well. A few weeks later... March 29, 1962. The Presidential Press Conference from the New State Department Auditorium, Washington, D.C. Several announcements to make. It is with extreme regret that I announce the retirement of Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Charles Evans Whitaker, effective April 1st. Justice Whitaker, a member of the Supreme Court for nearly five years and of the federal judiciary 
for nearly eight years, is retiring at the direction of his physician for reasons of disability. I know that the bench and the bar of the entire nation join me in commending Mr. Justice Whitaker for his devoted service to his country during a critical period in its history. Next, I want to take this opportunity to stress again the importance of the tax bill now before the House of Representatives. Wow. And whatever happened with the case with Baker v. Carr? Well, Whitaker didn't vote on Baker v. Carr. So you could say that this case that essentially broke him, his vote didn't count. Wow. Around the time that he was in the hospital, there was sort of this liberal coup at the court where Frankfurter lost a couple of other votes. So in the end, the decision actually wasn't very close at all. What was it? It was 6-2. Oh, Frankie. Yeah. And Brennan wrote the majority opinion, and he says that this whole kind of cluster that we've been fighting over of how states in Tennessee count their voters, that this is something the courts can and should look at. So in other words, they decided to lower their horns and go into the thicket. Oh, yay, they did. Oh, yay. Um, and just one or two final questions. Um, what happened to Justice Frankfurter? Well, the, the thing that I find perhaps most extraordinary is that less than two weeks after the decision in Baker versus Carr came down. Felix Frankfurter was working at his desk at the Supreme Court. And Frankfurter's secretary found him sprawled on the floor of his office from a stroke. He suffered a massive stroke and then never returned to service. And while he was in the hospital, Solicitor General Archibald Cox visited Frankfurter. And Frankfurter, he, he was in a wheelchair and could barely speak. But he apparently conveyed to Archibald Cox that the decision in Baker versus Carr had essentially caused his stroke. He felt so passionately that the court should stay out of the case that he physically physically deteriorated after the court had gone the other way. After Baker versus Carr, President Kennedy essentially had two Supreme Court vacancies to fill. Now, Whitaker's seat he filled with a guy who turned out to be a moderate. Frankfurter's vacancy, that second vacancy? It's that vacancy that will lead to the appointment of a man named Arthur Goldberg. That is the fifth vote that the four liberals, what are regarded as the four liberals, that becomes the fifth vote that they need really to create what has come to be regarded as the Warren Court Revolution. This is when the Supreme Court basically became an agent for social change. That revolution that begins with the 1962 term, that's the revolution that is going to change. Sanders, it starts out with the idea of one man, one vote. And the way we draw our political boundaries. When the prosecutor withheld a confession. The way we think of criminal justice. They would wear small black armbands. The way we treat First Amendment. Uh, religious education. Religious and obscenity issues. That's the Warren court that people remember. And that's the court that came into existence when Felix Frankfurter left. And so just thinking about that question that that woman asked all the way at the beginning of the uh, story. Yes. Could you um, address what I see as the 
uh, increasing politicization of the court, the apotheosis of which, I guess, was, uh, you know, voting or electing Bush to be our president. You can kind of draw a line from this moment in Baker versus Carr all the way to December 9th, 2000. Here in the east, the polls in six new states have just closed, and the lead story at this hour is the state of Florida is too close to call. I think Phil Trinkford would have said, see, that's what I told you, that's what would happen, uh, is that eventually you will, you will be deciding a partisan question, which presidential candidate essentially received the most vote. For those who felt themselves on the losing side of Bush v. Gore, this was Justice Frankfurter's revenge. This was the moment that uh, Baker v. Carr had opened up. And when I teach this to students, uh, and particularly uh, in the decade after Bush v. Gore, when uh, the the, the sentiment, sentiments about this were still quite raw. I would say to them, well, is this, was Frankfurt a right? And I remember a student uh, in the mid-2000s who said uh, in class, I never thought I would say this, but because I hated the outcome in Bush v. Gore, I was so angry when the court interceded. But if Bush v. Gore is the price we have to pay for the courts making the overall political system work somewhat more tolerably properly, it's a price I'm willing to pay. What happened to Douglas? We sort of lost track of him. So after Baker versus Carr was decided, he went on to be a Supreme Court justice for 13 more years. And to this day, he actually holds the record for being the longest serving justice of all time, 36 years. Huh. And Frankfurter? So Baker versus Carr was the last case that he ever heard, and he died a few years afterwards. Man. And, and Charles Whitaker, did he ever recover? Well, after Whitaker retired from the court, he moved back to Kansas City with his family, and his son said that it took him about two years to get better from his nervous breakdown. But he did get better, and eventually he got a job as counsel to General Motors, but he never returned to the bench. He never was a judge again. So Baker versus Carr may be the most important voting district case you've never heard of, but coming up, we're going to talk about the most important voting district case you're going to hear a whole lot about this term, because the Supreme Court may be on the verge of another historic decision. This is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad. Stay with us. This is More Perfect from Radiolab. I am Jad Abumrad. In Baker versus Carr, the Supreme Court entered the political thicket, and it has been in that thicket, its horns deeply entangled in the thicket ever since, from decisions about abortion to gay marriage to Bush v. Gore. And this term, the court will wade deep into the thicket once more to decide Gill v. Whitford. This is a redistricting case, which is centered around how voting districts were drawn in Wisconsin uh, around very partisan lines. But this case is not just your 
quote, run-of-the-mill redistricting case. If the court in this case decides that, say, partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, well, that has the potential to turn voting districts upside down all across the country. This is the first time in more than a decade that it's going to take up the question of drawing the lines for partisan gains. And it's going to do that right on the eve of everybody redrawing the lines everywhere. Local districts, state districts, congressional districts. After the census in 2020, all sorts of different bodies will redraw all sorts of different lines. And this case will help decide how and where. To really understand the stakes here, you got to start with precedent, where all of this came from. And that is where more perfect correspondent Sean Rahm's firm began with Justin Levitt, who's a professor from Loyola Law in Los Angeles. Uh, The last time the court really addressed the matter in detail, the last time it really dug into the meat, was 2004, a case called Veith versus Jubilee out of Pennsylvania. And the court did something interesting. All nine justices agreed that too much partisanship in the process was unconstitutional, was illegal. Mm -hmm. What they couldn't agree on is how much is too much and who should decide how much is too much. And there the court was pretty bitterly divided. And I'm guessing they failed to come up with any sort of test. They came up with a bunch of tests. Oh, they did? Individual members of the court came up with a bunch of tests. It's just nobody right, could but agree. They didn't agree. On, correct. Okay, yeah, yeah. So there were four justices, more conservative justices, who uh, said the court shouldn't be in the business of deciding how much is too much. It's too hard to tell. Hmm. And so we should just get out of this business entirely. If there's any relief to be had, it's from the political process. The four more liberal justices on the court offered up three different tests. They said, yeah, we can decide, and here's how we should decide. But they couldn't agree on how we should decide. And so uh, there were three different tests by four different justices, each describing a different way to tell how much is too much. Hmm. And that left Justice Kennedy sitting in the middle, as he often is, uh, the most powerful man in the country by many stretches. Justice Kennedy has filed an opinion concurring in the judgment, and this forms the fifth vote necessary for our disposition of affirmance. He recognizes that there are no existing manageable standards for measuring whether a political gerrymander burdens the representational rights of a party's voters. Justice Kennedy would, however, limit his disposition to the case before us, recognizing that the outcome might be different in a case where a suitable standard could be found. And what he said is, I've heard your tests. I don't like any of them, but I'm not ready to give up yet. And so the courts should be in this business, yes, but I haven't heard a standard that lets us decide how much is too much yet, so give me some. It was as public a plea to lawyers to bring cases to help him work through the appropriate test as I think anybody's ever seen. And fast forward, let's say, 13 years, did he, did he get it? We'll find out. Uh, there is one person who knows that, and he might not even know it yet. And does the fact that there's been a lot of discussion about him potentially retiring soon add to the tension here? There's a lot of speculation about his retirement for sure. I think that adds to the drama in every case he hears. Um, He has been the pivotal swing vote on so much uh, within the court during his time on the court that every incremental case gets a little extra oomph 
uh-huh. uh, when people are trying to figure out if that's one of the last cases that Justice Kennedy will decide. In a move that could have a huge bearing on the future of American politics, the Supreme Court on Monday agreeing to take up an explosive case on whether lawmakers in Wisconsin's Republican-led legislature went too far in 2011 when they redrew the state's electoral map to make it harder for Democrats to win legislative races. What's the story in Wisconsin with this case? My understanding with, with redistricting and political gerrymandering is you, you've got your packing and you've got your cracking. So which is happening in Wisconsin? Both? Both. And because we can't be helped, political scientists have also developed terms like shacking, uh, which is putting an incumbent up in with another incumbent, or okay. stacking. Um, so packing, cracking, shacking, stacking. And I'm Let sure they go on down. from there. <laughs> okay. So the way that you achieve a, an effective partisan gerrymander is you draw the districts to cut up an opposing party's support where you can. And that's facilitated if you take one or two districts and pack them super full of your opposing party. So you concentrate a lot of the opposition party in a few districts and then split them up in the rest of the territory. Mm. And that is one very effective and, and fairly longstanding technique for ensuring that your party wins more districts more of the time more durably. Okay. And, and that happened in Wisconsin. Right. So is, is this case in Wisconsin uh, exceptional or does it, is it just par for the course when what we see across the country? A little bit of both. Uh, so it's exceptional in the degree and exceptional in the durability. Um, Wisconsin is an example of a map that was drawn, it seems like, with the intent and the effect of preserving a durable partisan Republican majority for the decade. And there are a bunch of states across the country that were designed for Republican advantage in this last cycle. That's because there were a bunch of states in this, in this last cycle where Republicans controlled the process unilaterally. There were a few states where Democrats were in control. And generally speaking, this is actually an issue that everybody should be concerned about because uh, the party that has green lights all the way through tends to use it. Hmm. So... Uh, Democrats are really ticked off about the way the maps were drawn in North Carolina and in Wisconsin and in a few other states. Republicans are really ticked off about the way the lines were drawn in Maryland and in Illinois and in fewer other states just because the Democrats weren't in control in 2010 of that many places. So then just in sum, we have the looming possibility of Kennedy's retirement, and he's the one who left the door open. We have the upcoming census. We have this particularly egregious example of political gerrymandering, and we have this unprecedented possibility of them declaring a gross political gerrymander. Is that fair? Yeah, that's all fair. Those are all certainly factors in the mix. You've also got feeding all of this uh, a move that's slow but I think growing to try and establish structures in states that get rid of the worst partisan gerrymanders using state law. Hmm. You've got states like California and Arizona and actually slightly longer ago, Idaho and Washington, states that don't often share a lot of political beliefs in common, but all of them have established independent redistricting bodies so that the people with the biggest conflicts aren't drawing the lines. You've got a state like Florida that lets the legislature draw the lines, but put in rules under state law, under the state constitution, that prohibit partisan gerrymandering. 
Uh, you've got states like New York and like Ohio and like uh, most recently Utah that are considering action. And so there are a lot of movements on the ground uh, in order to try to rein in, again, what citizens recognize is a pretty big problem. And that too is is not directly affected by what the court will do, but certainly in the background. But if we just restored American congressional districts, legislative districts, to, to our defaults and returned everything to rectangles, would that be just as bad or would that potentially be something healthier? So hitting a system reset and returning to the default it may well be exactly the right idea, but it's not rectangles. So it turns out that many of the rectangles we have in this country are, you know, from the Northwest Ordinance when we had to survey vacant land and we thought the easiest way to survey vacant land is to set up rectangles because we like platonic geometry. Right. But that's not the way people live. Nobody has ever bought a house because it fit the last perfect spot on the last perfect square grid and the last perfect development in a square city, in a square county, in a square state. The way we live is sloppy and messy and organic. Mm. And there are lots of different proxies for trying to capture the way we live in real communities. Some people say the compactness of the district, how close people are together. Some people say following county lines or city lines. Some people say follow racial communities or the like. And these are all different ways of trying to get at real representation for real people with real common interests. That I want somebody who represents me and my neighbors because we have a real commitment to territorial districts in this country where we think that physical presence means something. That's not rectangles. Right, yeah. And so, for me, the system default, if I want to get rid of all the other options and go back to basics, it all starts with designing districts around real communities that have something in common with each other. Uh huh. It turns out that's really hard to do when you're a legislator focused intently on the next election, when you can see right around the corner and know that where I move this line or that line is going to make the difference in whether I've got a job next year or not. Mm. But there are states that have tried to push that system default by giving somebody else the pen. And most of the time that happens when the citizens take it away by an initiative rather than the legislature giving that up voluntarily. But that's part of the push to create these independent bodies in states across the country, is to press exactly that system reset button, to go back to basics, give somebody else the ability to draw the lines, and instruct them in various ways, go draw lines around real communities. Sometimes those will look pretty. Sometimes that won't look pretty. Sometimes we'll have different communities recognized in one part of a state and a whole different set of criteria in another side of the state, and that's fine. Um, there might be a state where county lines matter a ton in the northwest, but nobody really cares about county lines in the southeast, and that's fine. You get to work through all those problems on the ground if you have people who aren't first and foremost concerned with their self-interest, and then secondarily and only barely secondarily their party's interest. Well, let's hope we get we get a decision that changes that, huh? I certainly do. A lot of people certainly do. And I think... Uh, you will see Justice Kennedy weighing not only what the Constitution requires and not only what his fellow justices on the court are seeking to do, 
But he has shown himself to be cognizant of trends in the American public and the American popular opinion. Hmm. And that's not improper to have in the back of his mind. Loyola Law Professor Justin Levitt speaking with More Perfect's Sean Rahm's firm. This episode of More Perfect was produced by me, Chad Abumrad, Susie Lechtenberg, Tobin Lowe, Kelsey Padgett, Ellie Mistal, Sean Robbins-Firm, Alex Overington, David Herman, and Soren Wheeler, with fact-checking by Michelle Harris, and thanks to Gian Riley for his music. Archival interviews with Justice William O. Douglas came from the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections at Princeton University Library. Supreme Court audio is from Oye, a free law project in collaboration with the Legal Institute at Cornell. Leadership support for More Perfect was provided by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Charles Evans Hughes Memorial Foundation, and the Joyce Foundation. If you want to hear more stories about the Supreme Court, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it on iTunes or at Apple Podcasts or on Google Music. And we've got lots more stuff at moreperfectpodcast.org. I'm Chad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. <laughs>